I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. In 1872, when Ulysses S. Grant created the world's very first national park, it was surprisingly easy to do. No one in the world had really created a national park before, and so they just basically draw a big square uh, and say everything within this square is a national park. But managing the world's first national park, now that was new territory. Early on, when people were going, they needed to eat, and they would shoot elk in the park. To feed themselves. Uh, and there's a question of, can you shoot an elk in the park or not? Is that, is that an appropriate use of a, of, a, of a national park or not? This is Carl Jacoby, co-director of Columbia University's Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race. And as you may have expected, the big square to which he is referring was Yellowstone National Park. When it was created, it still hadn't been entirely surveyed and explored by white men. But according to those who had been there, it was incredibly beautiful. One of the most active volcanic areas in the country, replete with waterfalls, geysers, mountain peaks, and home to one of the last surviving herds of wild buffalo. But it was also, at the time, incredibly remote. So we're not talking about opening up Disneyland here. It's very far from a railroad, it's very distant, and so the only people who could really visit it, other than the native people who already live there, who obviously don't know it's been turned into a park, were very wealthy tourists who could do the equivalent of sort of a multi-month-long safari. You'd have to go to the closest railhead and then, you know, rent horses. And so the first year, 1872, I believe there's something like 200 to 400 tourists who go to the park at all. Two to 400 tourists in a park that spans some three and a half thousand square miles. With so few people and so many natural riches, killing a few elk or a few hundred, wasn't really a problem. And even if it was, there wasn't anybody to whom you could register a complaint. Unlike the parks we know today, early tourists to Yellowstone were treated to an utterly unbureaucratic experience. There were no cabins or restaurants, designated trails, permits, placards, or even park rangers. Just a single, part-time, unpaid superintendent. A guy from Michigan 
who only entered the park twice in the five years he ran it. That being said, Yellowstone did not stay remote for long. Uh, eventually, as the sort of tide of white settlement expands, you start to see white settlers really not just hunting, you know, an elk to feed themselves while they're there as tourists, but beginning to uh, kill large numbers of elk for their hides or for their teeth, uh, sort of for the trophy market. It's hard to calculate just how much poaching took place in the early years of Yellowstone, Jacoby writes, but the park's second superintendent estimated some 7,000 elk were killed for hides just between 1875 and 1877. Uh, And they realized quickly if they don't do something that they're going to, uh, all the wildlife there will be destroyed. The other thing that they eventually realize as more uh, people start to come there is that actually there's a still very ongoing native presence in the park. White settlers weren't the only ones taking elk in Buffalo. Even as early park evangelists advertised virgin, untouched wilderness, visitors saw near-universal evidence of native life around Yellowstone. There were shelters, pole fences used to drive game towards open areas, fires intentionally set to promote new growth for grazing and game, and on occasion, visitors might even see hunting parties in the hundreds. Yellowstone overlapped with the ancestral grounds of many tribes, Shoshone, Bannock, and Nez Perce, just to name a few. And it's not a coincidence that around the time Yellowstone was created, these native tribes were being forced onto reservations. On many of these, rations were scarce. And so they entered the park like they had always done, but relied more and more on the game that called Yellowstone home. In 1877, about 750 Nez Perce, who had resisted subjugation, were fleeing, engaged in a moving war against the U.S. Army. They were traveling on a trail that had served as a de facto highway across the Rockies for generations of Native people. A trail that just so happened to cross through the newly created Yellowstone Park, where a pack of friends and family members had set up camp. Fearing that the tourists may give their position away to the U.S. Army, the Nez Perce kidnapped the group and took them along to Montana as hostages. It wasn't exactly the image of an unspoiled American wilderness that the U.S. government was trying to create. So there's a sense that both to control white poachers and to really get rid of the native presence, there's going to have to be a stronger enforcement authority in the park than there ever has been before. And they experiment with a couple of things, but the short answer is eventually in 1886, they decide to call in the U.S. Army. Sure, it was still a tourist destination for those with the means to see it. But for the next 30 years, it was also in occupied territory guarded by the unlikely ancestors of today's park rangers, guns, soldiers, and outposts. They called it Fort Yellowstone. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. The creation of the national parks is celebrated by environmentalists everywhere. And the thinking behind the parks became the mainstream ideology that has shaped conservation for centuries. The typical rhetoric is that a national park is protecting wilderness. But what I really want to underscore as a historian is that this wilderness was not there from the beginning. It very much had to be created by the removal of indigenous peoples. 
Today, producer Taylor Quimby re-examines the very model that started American conservation as we know it to better understand what happens when you try and separate the natural world from the people that inhabit it. Two weeks after leaving Yellowstone, Roosevelt's whirlwind tour brought him to Arizona's Grand Canyon. President Teddy Roosevelt is often called America's first conservationist president. And his words and ideas, namely that some of nature's wonders need to be protected from human interference, still influence environmental discourse today. Here he is, dramatized in Ken Burns' docuseries, The National Parks, America's Greatest Idea, talking about the Grand Canyon. Keep this great wonder of nature as it now is. Leave it as it is. You cannot improve it. The ages have been at work on it, and man can only mar it. This relatable sentiment is likely what makes conservation so attractive. But it's also sort of impossible. Early conservationists, like Teddy Roosevelt, believed in responsible use of the natural world meaning don't hunt or log until there's nothing left to hunt or log. Whereas modern environmentalism, as influenced by people like Rachel Carson, author of Silent Spring, takes a more hardline approach, that wilderness should go truly untouched by human hands. In practice, neither approach can literally leave it as it is. Whether you draw a border around something, call it a game preserve, or a wildlife refuge, the world is not static, and somebody is always getting through to the other side. Because they, you know, you allow uh, tourist safaris and all kinds of uh, sort of middle class interventions in the natural landscape. So when one says that it's devoid of human disturbance, they're basically meaning that poor people are not allowed in the park. This is Prakash Kashman. He's co-director of the Economic and Social Rights Research Program at the University of Connecticut. Throughout the 20th century, conservationists and environmentalists have looked to protect wildlife and biodiversity through the creation of parks and other forms of exclusionary wildlife zones. Zones that seek to preserve spaces devoid of human impact, or to create them by removing and disempowering the indigenous people who already live there. Today, some academics call this strategy by a pejorative name, fortress conservation. Any developed civilized society uh, is, is all concrete and cement. And so you need to go out to actually find nature. And because that's the only sphere in which nature actually exists, you protect it like a fortress. But fortress conservation, Prakash says, relies on the myth that you can separate humankind from the natural world. When forests are turned into fortresses, they require guards, gatekeepers, and administrators people who decide how fortresses can be used and by whom. So on the one hand, you don't allow the poorest people to forage and you know, hunt for small game, but you are happy to allow exploration and exploitation of mineral resources and fossil fuels. Prakash is talking broadly here about some parks and preserves worldwide, but he says this is the case even here in the U.S. While there aren't oil and gas wells in Yellowstone or Yosemite, there are wells in Cuyahoga Valley National Park in Ohio. 
As of 2017, there were also wells in 11 other monuments, historic sites, and forest reserves managed by the National Park Service. And technically, companies still own mineral rights under dozens more. It raises the question, when the ramparts of fortress conservation go up, what forces have the wealth and power to fight back or be made an exception? Historically, the Blackfeet lived on the northern Great Plains. This is Rosalind Lapierre, associate professor of environmental studies at the University of Montana. Uh, as Americans moved, um, you know, from the East Coast towards the West Coast, tribes were pushed further west, including the Blackfeet. So we still live on our own historic territory, but it's a much smaller version of what we used to live on. And instead of being out in the northern Great Plains, we are now really pushed up against the mountains. Today, the Blackfeet Indian Reservation borders the eastern side of Glacier National Park, at the northern terminus of the American Rockies. The area was first leased from the Blackfeet under negotiations led by an influential early conservationist named George Bird Grinnell. Um, and this is the, the I'll say, so-called 1895 agreement um, between the Blackfeet tribe and the United States. But the agreement wasn't for a park. In the 1895 lease, the Blackfeet explicitly retained rights to continue hunting, gathering, and fishing in the Rockies, what they did was open up the mountains for exploration by miners. In search of uh, gold, silver, copper, the minerals that were building um, the United States, right, as an empire. Over 15 years, thousands of miners pickaxed their way through the peaks and valleys of the Rockies. They built towns and abandoned them. The northern Rockies weren't so much a gold rush as they were a gold flop. So in 1910, George Bird Grinnell led another negotiation this time with the United States Congress, to make the area a national park. The northern half um, became Glacier National Park. Um, the southern half became part of Lewis and Clark National Forest. So when it became a park in 1910, it was not an untouched wilderness. Uh, it, one, it had been a place that indigenous people had used for thousands of years, and then, in the previous 15 years, it had been a place that miners, thousands of miners, had come in and no stone unturned. They looked and looked and looked for uh, natural resources to exploit. If they had found something, there would be no Glacier National Park today. But under the guise of a national park, the rights that the Blackfeet had retained under the earlier agreement were effectively reversed without permission. Hunting, fishing, and gathering, rights negotiated between two nations, were suddenly criminalized under park rules as poaching and trespassing. The fortress, which had been placed here, did not include the architects who had originally shaped the land. Usually the harvesting and gathering of plants is done by women. So oftentimes when there is a national park that is created in an indigenous community's you know, historic territory, that really the major impact um, on that society, on that culture, is the relationship of women and girls to that landscape. So people continued those practices, um, but they kind of did it now in stealth because they knew that they could potentially 
um, get things confiscated or potentially be arrested. There was always kind of that threat. The removal of indigenous people from Glacier National Park, or the erasure of their presence from a public point of view, isn't just the collateral damage of fortress conservation. It's a founding error in the science upon which we've based so much of our understanding of the natural world. National parks, as well as being tourist attractions, are scientific laboratories. Every single year, I mean, I don't know how many different scientific teams are there. There's a lot. Where people study climate change, grizzly bears, invasive plants, and all sorts of things. We're going to start our conservation story, erase the people off the landscape, say that the only thing that's been here is plants and animals and glaciers and water. And that's how you start with bad science. Rosalind told me that she was hesitant, uncomfortable even, using the phrase bad science. I think she knows how easily claims of fake news and bad science are used today to dismiss ideas you don't agree with. But this is an idea worth exploring. And one of the best examples of what Rosalind is talking about comes from the very first national park. Which brings us back to the beginning of this story, in the late 19th century, when the U.S. government brought in the army and created Fort Yellowstone. Initially, when the armies brought into Yellowstone in 1886, the idea is that this will be a temporary measure. Uh, no one really expected that it would last as long as it did, and it lasted for 30 years. Fifty men on horseback arrived in Yellowstone in August 1886 and set to creating order in the so-called wilderness. If you've ever wondered why park rangers' uniforms look the way they do, it's because they evolved from the U.S. military uniform that was in place when the National Park Service was finally created, decades later. The soldiers set to work, improving roads, patrolling the wilderness, and deterring Native people from entering the park. It wasn't necessarily a violent ordeal. The U.S. was and had been warring with various tribes for years. In some cases, soldiers were actively rotated to Yellowstone from active fields of battle. Their mere presence in the park was a signal to keep away. So mostly, the soldiers busied themselves fending off white hunters who had settled in newly built towns near the park and were crossing the invisible borders to hunt for game. Because Yellowstone has one of the last buffalo herds, if you can kill a buffalo and get its head, that's actually worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So they're very much engaged in a sort of cat and mouse uh, game against uh, local poachers. They did so in militaristic fashion. By building outposts in remote areas of the park, they sent spies to local towns to try and root out information about poaching, and they started to centralize and smooth out the tangle of trails that had been formed mainly by Native people, hunters, and trappers prior to their arrival. They created four main entrances and took detailed information from visitors who passed through them, even going as far as to sealing red wax over the locks of their weapons to prevent them from hunting. But the soldiers of Yellowstone weren't just trying to separate tourists from the wilderness they were charged with protecting. They actively engaged in shaping the world around them. And they're the ones that lead to the extermination of the wolf in Yellowstone. Uh, and so they're thinking that what we want to do is, uh, you know, have as many game animals as possible. And so the way to do that is to kill all the predators that we can. So kill all the coyotes, kill all the mountain lions, and kill all the wolves. The other thing that they're involved with as they, and I, I I can't think of it except outside of these militaristic metaphors, is they're really engaged almost in a war on fire in Yellowstone. This is the problem with Teddy Roosevelt's leave-it-as-it-is ideology. Since the end of the last Ice Age, people have managed the land. 
Indigenous tribes used fire for all sorts of reasons, clearing land for grazing, driving game into the open. So by enacting a policy of 100% fire suppression, the soldiers of Yellowstone weren't keeping things the way they were. They were changing them for the worse. The fire suppression policies of the 20th century have led to years and years of piled up fuel in forests out west and increased the size and danger of wildfires that do spark. Similarly, the soldiers' instinct to preserve big game populations by eradicating park predators created a cascade of other problems. Exterminating the wolf, for instance, the elk population gets way too large. This leads to overgrazing. This leads to actually pushing out of the beaver population. This leads to decrease in wetlands in Yellowstone. I mean, it's, it's negative in all sorts of ways. In these ways, the very advocates for quote-unquote science-based approaches to conservation, and the soldiers that carried out that vision, were corroding the places they sought to protect. You know, Western society invented, quote-unquote, wilderness. The Park Service has since acknowledged the harm early park policies caused. They're experimenting with managing wildfires instead of just putting them all out. Wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone in 1995, and their presence has had all sorts of positive domino effects throughout the ecosystem. But as Carl Jacoby told me, there are no real efforts underway to reintroduce the other primary predator of Yellowstone National Park, people. There's an erasure rate that occurs. So part of the national park story is erasing like indigenous people off the landscape. Um, and I, again, I don't want to use kind of this terminology, but that's how you get kind of the bad science um, when, when you're uh, not including humans as part of that story of how did these ecosystems evolve and how, why are these ecosystems the way they are right now? Um, they're that way because humans have been there. While America is often seen as the birthplace of fortress conservation, few ideas are born in a vacuum. So what came before Yellowstone? And how has that model spread across the world? That's after a break. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Twas brillig and the slivy toes did gyre and gimble in the wave. <laughs> and this man, reciting the intensely British poem Jabberwocky, is Hadrian Cook. By original discipline, I'm an earth scientist. Nowadays, Hadrian is a retired lecturer and author of a book about the New Forest, a national park in southern England that once upon a time was very much not open to the public. When the Normans established themselves, they sort of did what was the fashionable thing for tyrants of the 11th century to do, and that was to set aside large areas of the countryside for their own pleasure, which was the hunting forests. Yellowstone National Park is sometimes thought of as the birthplace of fortress conservation. But like so many things American, the roots of this ideology didn't spring into existence in 1776. They go back a long, long way. So before we talk about the present and future of fortress conservation, producer Taylor Quimby picks up the story in the forests of medieval England. The word forest actually comes from the early Middle Ages. But foresta, as it was originally called, had less to do with trees and more to do with hunting. It wasn't a landscape. It was a legal definition. So it's outside 
um, the English common law. It's dominated for the pleasure of the kings and the nobles. And the word royal, as in forest, denotes it's ultimately under the monarch um, and his huntsman and nobody else. These swaths of royal forest tended to be remote locations with relatively poor soil, places that hadn't been converted wholesale into farmland. But they weren't exactly isolated pockets of land either. Hadrian says that at its peak in the 12th century, it's likely that as much as a quarter of England was under forest law. And that means we aren't talking about unoccupied land. The other thing which is debated by, by archaeologists is the extent to which they depopulated the uh, areas uh, of, of the, the, the farmers and the peasants and what have you that were already there. Uh, and there is some evidence that that did in fact happen in the new forest. Over the next few hundred years, across generations of kings and queens, these areas became home to one of the first documented examples of a full forest bureaucracy. The crown could sell licenses to hunt deer in the king's wood, cheaper ones for taking rabbits or lumber, allowances for grazing pigs. The royal forests were playgrounds for the nobles and managed resources for the state. And they had chief foresters and then a whole range of officials under them People called regarders, obviously from the Norman French regard to look, je regarde, and things like that. Um, the verderers, who were actually judicial people. You had the agisters or agisters who were doing much more practical things, uh, including being concerned with animals who had the right uh, to graze there, to, to, to regulating that. And there were woodworths, woodwards. And there were All of this would have been a shock to the people who lived there before. Their use of the forest for subsistence, would have been a matter of survival. Now, it was criminal. Popular history tells us you could be killed for killing a deer. Um, and there are records of saying that you could be blinded for doing this, that, and the other. One of the tenets of modern conservation, in America anyway, is that proponents will argue it benefits the public at large. But when benefit isn't spread as evenly, and when resource use is tied to subsistence living, Sympathies don't always lie with the conservationists. Take the story of one Robin Hood, who lived in the Sherwood Forest with his band of merry men. Robin Hood took from the rich and gave to the poor, which is to say, he was a poacher, illegally taking game and wood in a royal forest. What do we need that the forest cannot provide? We have food, wood for weapons. We'll find safety and solace in our trees. Yeah, but what about our kids? Shutters taking all they got, too. And by God, we take it back. Today, Sherwood and the new forest that Hadrian studied have both been converted into preserved lands and public parks. And if you were to stroll in them today, it would be nice to imagine that this land had somehow been saved from development through the thoughtful planning of environmental activists. But that's not the case. They were forcibly taken by the monarchy, guarded and managed. The idea that out there was somewhere green and nice where there were nymphs and shepherds and people rolling in the hay with milkmaids, English Social History 101 would tell you that that's rather a bad distortion because of course there was a lot of poverty in rural areas and a lot of the things about the New Forest is about poor people making a living, often against the interests of the Crown or against the interests of the state itself. So why have we been talking about medieval England? I think that most people take it for granted that Robin Hood is the hero and the King Stooge, the Sheriff of Nottingham, is the villain. 
But when we're talking about fortress conservation, a lot of folks fail to see the parallel. Over the past 200 years, many people have viewed conservationists not as a band of merry men, but more like royal game wardens and spoiled nobles, dictating who can use the natural world and how. During the Civil War, Congress passed, and Abraham Lincoln signed, the Homestead Act, which would allow settlers to easily claim land in the new American West. Easily for white settlers, that is. Take the land in North America, seize it from indigenous people, and as quickly as possible, put it in the, the hands of the yeoman farmers, of white yeoman farmers, and turn it into farmland. And that was the land policy, and if you want to call it, that was the environmental policy of the United States during this time period. Again, this is Carl Jacoby, history professor and author of Crimes Against Nature, Squatters, Poachers, Thieves, and the Hidden History of American Conservation. The 19th century had seen unprecedented booms in migration. The Industrial Revolution was transforming urban life, and extensive logging in places like the Midwest was devastating landscapes. White wealthy men had a growing nostalgia for pioneer life, and these changes were threatening their sense of manliness and manifest destiny. So they called upon the U.S. government to protect areas they associated with their vision of America, and began to flock to green spaces for pleasure, recreation, and tests of character. Green spaces like Yellowstone, the Adirondacks in New York, or the White Mountains in New Hampshire. They're places of uh, sort of pure Americanness that aren't tainted by immigration. Uh, they're places that are rural, uh, that aren't tainted by uh, industrialization. Uh, and they're places where one can reconnect with this early frontier masculinity. It's very much a playground for uh, white American men, particularly elite white American men, to go out and to sort of recapture the masculinity that has been threatened by all these changes that are happening in uh, American culture at this particular time. Few organizations straddle this duality between calls for conservation and the desire to show mastery over nature as the Boone and Crockett Club. In hunting as in life, it is up to each individual to make a judgment about what is appropriate. Formed in 1887 by cattle rancher and future president Theodore Roosevelt, the Boone and Crockett Club still exists today. Its stated mission is to promote the conservation and management of wildlife, especially big game, and its habitat, and to maintain the highest ethical standards for fair chase and sportsmanship in North America. Ask yourself, is it safe? Is it legal? Is it sporting? Is it ethical? And will it project a positive image of yourself and hunting? When it was founded, the Boone and Crockett Club hosted some of the most notable conservationists of the period. George Bird Grinnell, one of the first editors of Field and Stream, and the one who pushed for the creation of Glacier National Park. Gifford Pinchot, who would go on to become the first chief of the U.S. Forest Service. Frederick Burnham, sometimes called King of Scouts, who later in life made a fortune through oil. And also in the club, noted eugenicist Madison Grant. You know, there's not much to it. it this was a racist colonial imperial project of trying to control the landscape uh, and keep the local populations out of these landscapes. This again is Prakash Kashvan. The Boone and Crockett Club set about creating the image of a noble sporting hunter and lobbied for the protection of less developed landscapes across America. But this form of conservation had a tendency to be self-serving. In the newly formed Adirondack Park, for example, hunting season coincided with tourist season. The rest of the year, subsistence hunters who relied on game for food became poachers and trespassers by default. 
Sound familiar? Boy, killed one of the sheriff of Nottingham's deer. You stop us. We needed the meat. I advise you to move on, Pilgrim. This is the sheriff's land. Wrong. Examples like this are why Prakash Kashvan largely sees this era of conservation as being hypocritical. And so it was essentially uh, a blatant attempt to justify their own hunting practices while keeping these quote-unquote primitive backward people out of uh, natural landscapes. In some cases, conservationists expressed respect for the knowledge and methods of indigenous hunters, but only under specific conditions, and when those populations were too small to threaten their own hunting. You know, these people can also be part of the landscape as long as they are as wild as the wild animals. And even as the Boone and Crockett Club rallied against unsportsmanlike or unnecessary killing, Teddy Roosevelt had no qualms taking an absolutely absurd number of animals in the name of conservation. On his famous 1909 African expedition, collecting specimens for the Smithsonian Natural History Museum, Roosevelt and his son killed no less than 512 animals between the two of them. Teddy alone bagged himself nine lions and 21 storks. They brought back so much that, you know, they literally had to sweep all the museums and all the spaces they could find to actually stock those uh, trophies. So this was, yeah, this was crazy. So this is the context in which so many of our ideas around conservation were born. And even though there are myriad forms of environmental activism today, many of which bear little resemblance to 19th century conservationists, many have continued to downplay or outright ignore the racism and violence at the root of the movement's history. Carl says that when his book, Crimes Against Nature, first came out in 2002, some saw it as a betrayal. Bush had recently taken office, and they worried the book could be used against the movement. A more positive portrayal of the parks, and the problematic people who championed them, came a few years later, and was probably much more to their liking. John Muir was there, mounted on the horse which he rode now and then, when no woman would accept the loan of it. He was rapt, entranced. He threw up his arms in a grand gesture. This is the morning of creation, he cried. The whole thing is beginning now. The mountains are singing together. A few years after my book came out, uh, Ken Burns did his documentary on the national parks. And he actually, he cites a lot of my research from my book in his companion volume. So he clearly encountered my book, but he was so invested in creating a heroic narrative of the park service that he was unwilling to consider any of the possible negative readings of what the Park Service had done. Histories that are erased or go unacknowledged have a way of being repeated. And in recent decades, fortress-style conservation has been exported all over the world. Again, here's Prakash Kashvan at the University of Connecticut. So this model has been implanted right at the center of the global agreements on biodiversity conservation. And there are global targets uh, so, you know, in 1990, we started out with, a, uh, you know, a humble target of getting 10% of the landscape under uh, protected areas. And uh, that target was met way before the anticipated deadline for that target, right? And that should raise red flags. NGOs like the World Wildlife Fund, international groups like the World Bank, and local and national leaders across the globe have all embraced fortress conservation. 
And like every time before, the places that have been set aside for protection are not unoccupied. Prakash's research shows that forested regions under environmental protection are home to somewhere between 750 million and 1 billion people. Okay, I'm, uh, so I'm a Vicky Tauli Corpus. I, I am an Igorot, a Kankanae Igorot, who is from the Cordillera region here in the Philippines. We are one of the big uh, the indigenous peoples uh, recognized in the Philippines. Vicky Tauli Corpus is an advocate and worked for the UN leading a special report on the rights of indigenous peoples. I spoke with her on an iffy line over WhatsApp. Here are the indigenous peoples who have been protecting their forests since time immemorial, and suddenly, uh, even before there was such a thing as the Philippine government, no? and suddenly when the government and the colonizers came into the country, they started carving out these uh, spaces to be spaces that will be managed by the state. no. In 2018, Vicky Tali Corpus made her special report to the UN, titled Cornered by Protected Areas. The report notes that since 1990, more than a quarter million people have been pushed from their homes because of conservationist efforts, and that, despite initiatives by the UN and major environmental NGOs to recognize the rights of indigenous peoples, there has been little action to stop the harms of fortress-style conservation. Their general plan of action has not been implemented, no? So it makes me, it makes me uh, wonder, are these people serious? Told from the perspective of her community, conservation sounds less like a global good and more like an invasion. If parks and preserves were truly a way to protect the planet, they should be created in places at the greatest risk or with the most biodiversity. But Prakash Kashvan says conservation models pushed by big environmental NGOs, or bingos to their detractors, incentivize corruption and fundraising over strategic and efficient wildlife protection. And that's why... Setting up of the exclusionary wildlife uh, zones and national parks will be determined not by the considerations of environmental factors, but will be driven by the existence of uh, domestic inequalities. Prakash analyzed data from 137 countries and found that democratic countries with low economic inequality are likely to devote less land towards conservation. And countries with the most protected areas... One, these countries have very high levels of economic inequalities. And second, that these are countries with uh, very poor uh, to non-existent uh, democratic institutions. So they are mostly autocratic countries. Uh, Namibia, Zambia, Tanzania. These are all the countries that have nearly 40% or more than 40% of national land territories set aside as wildlife conservation zones. Right? So, so think about how can these poorest countries actually afford to set aside such large proportions of their, their land uh, territory. In exporting fortress conservation around the world, the details have changed. But the pattern, as modeled by the history of the U.S. national parks, has remained largely the same. Indigenous people and other people who live in or near parklands, particularly in the Global South, pay a steep price. In many countries, like India, parks are policed by heavily armed military forces. And they have orders to shoot at sight, or sometimes to shoot to kill. There, there was an investigative report being done by, by the BBC in one of the parks in India, and they found that nearly um, 50 people were killed in these kinds of operations in a span of uh, three to five years. 
while there were like five cases of rhino poaching. So local subsistence hunting, Prakash says, is criminalized, while the true culprits of worldwide environmental degradation are able to continue enjoying parklands as tourists and go on about their business. If we actually look at the most serious causes of deforestation and biodiversity loss, these are um, cattle ranching and soy farming. And so 75% of soy farming actually goes back to feed cattle ranching and poultry and so forth. So in that sense, meat eating is really the root cause of environmental degradation globally. Inside the U.S. national parks, Rosalind Lapierre says relationships have improved. She says educational outreach from the Park Service to the Blackfeet tribe, for example, is much better than it used to be. I, you know, I think that they've gotten much better. Um, they've definitely gotten much better over the years um, in um, working with tribes and, and recognizing that they have to work with tribes. But the fundamental relationship about who has control and agency is still there. I think it was 2016. Um, the... National Park Service decided to create a process by which indigenous women, primarily, could gather plants. So not just Glacier, but any national park. So the tribe would create a system in collaboration with the National Park Service, but the National Park Service would have to agree to it. The tribe would provide a list of all the plants, um, why they were using them, what um, quantity provide a list of all of the women, primarily women, who would be harvesting. One of the efforts at regulation is they say that people are allowed to gather plants as long as they only use handheld tools. And the National Park Service could say no. I don't think it's the park's business to know what we're gathering. If you've ever visited a national park and enjoyed the beautiful landscapes there, the point of this story isn't to make you feel guilty about that, but rather to help you more fully see the historical geography under your feet. Here in the US, tourism and time have softened the park service. The military has been replaced by rangers who for years made an effort to minimize the appearance of law enforcement within the boundaries of the parks. But elsewhere, that is not the case. And our early history of displacement and disenfranchisement is still active and underway. This doesn't have to be the way that land is conserved, protected from becoming strip malls or parking lots. And there are other models of conservation that we can look to, some of which are just starting to gain steam. In Vicky's special report, Cornered by Protected Areas, she recommends a new paradigm in conservation, one that offers grievance mechanisms for indigenous people whose livelihoods are impacted. One that recognizes and gives agency to the expertise of indigenous communities. In the report, she points out that research shows indigenous peoples are in themselves effective conservationists, and that stronger rights to land and forests is positively correlated with biodiversity and lower carbon emissions. So, you know, let's not romanticize rural and indigenous populations because they, their practices contribute to environmental conservation because those practices are innate to their social, cultural, and economic life worlds. And let's support that. 
Instead of erecting a fortress and filling it with outsiders, why not let the people in the forest do the protection themselves? Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby with help from me, Sam Evans-Brown, and Justine Paradise. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of Is It Sporting? Special thanks to David Bachrock, Luke Allen, and Mohammed Saidul Islam. Folks, if you do not follow us on social media, you should. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Outside In Radio and Facebook as well, where we have a closed, moderated, civil group for discussions. In particular, you should check us out there because we're starting an Outside In book club, and we'd love your input on what you want us to read when we start out, and that's where the voting is going to happen. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music was made by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In, as always, is a production of New Hampshire public radio.